welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. This week, we dive into the universal experience of humiliation. Humiliation and its cousins take many forms. You might feel humiliated for screwing up at work, for being rejected by a love interest, or for being literally or metaphorically dunked on. But we also experience humiliation at the hands of natural, faultless life processes, aging, illness, even our own physical form. It all begs the question, why is the human psyche so receptive to humiliation? Joining me this week are writers Vivian Gornick, whose essay on the topic appears in our October issue, and Sigrid Nunes, whose review of Italo Svevo's newly reissued The Very Old Man also appears. We look at the ways writers and psychologists have approached the study of humiliation historically and try to explain its ever-haunting threat. Is humiliation a survival instinct or something else? We also discuss the idea of sturdiness in prose and voice, and how we arbitrate the boundary between surrogated and unsurrogated voices in fiction. Gornick and Nunes share how they've been influenced by each other over time, and how their relationship with their own writing continues to evolve. Vivian starts off the conversation. Actually, it was Laurie Siegel. It was Laurie Siegel who said to me, why do we have to think well of ourselves? Now, throughout the years, I mean, there have been more than enough occasions for me to feel struck by how terrible I felt whenever I felt humiliated. And I would think, too, why does this hurt so much? And that is a question that just, it didn't dog me, but it returned again and again and again. And certainly as I grew older, not just for myself, but for everyone around me whom I could see when they were humiliated, feeling just as desperate as I ever did or could imagine. And I don't remember really what it was that at that moment, and this was a few years ago, it struck me penetratingly. And I just decided at that moment to say whatever I could on the subject. I don't think actually this piece, I don't think this piece that I wrote comes anywhere near nailing it. <laughs> I just think I just added my little bit to a huge literature on it. But it is it has always struck me ever since I read Chekhov saying, the worst thing one human, one human being can do to another is to humiliate them. I always felt that was true. And I always felt that, you know, all, Almost all the outrageous things that people do to one another can one way or another be traced back to that word. And it still, it remains a mystery why one feels so incredibly threatened when one feels diminished, vulnerable to humiliation. That's all. <laughs> well, I think it has something to do with, um, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. I think Chekhov was right. And also, what you described, what you felt, everyone recognizes it. It's not right. like just part of the population knows what you're talking about. Everybody has experienced this. And I think it's partly that if somebody can humiliate you, they have a certain power over you that is only being used in a negative way. So you are very vulnerable. So maybe, maybe it's partly has to do with survival, humiliation is a kind of defeat. 
And I, I was thinking about a lot of things reading this essay, which I thought was terrific. And I remembered this, this well, I remembered many times that I felt humiliated, but I remembered this, this experience I had. I was teaching ESL, and all of my students were immigrants from the Soviet Union, and they were different ages, but it was an adult class. And one night I, I woke up to this noise in, in bed, and I woke up. My upstairs neighbor had locked himself out, and he was breaking in right above me on the fire escape. Oh. And I panicked, so I jumped up, and then I went to the window to check it out, and a wave of nausea, terrible illness came over me, and I fell on my face, and I gave myself a black eye. So I oh. covered my face a black eye. And when I went to teach the next evening, I explained to the class what had happened. And they all looked at me with such pity because they all knew for a certainhood that my husband or boyfriend had beat me. Oh, right. And I, there is a Russian saying, by the way, <laughs> if he doesn't beat you, he doesn't love you. Right, right. Okay. They didn't, they didn't tell me that at the moment, but they told me that on other occasions and I've heard it elsewhere. But I cannot tell you how humiliated I felt. And suddenly I realized what it meant to be battered like that and to go out and to have people know, to have your family members know, your children know, people in the street, neighbors who heard you screaming. It was the worst humiliation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is one of the worst of the, of the worst. Yeah. Beating somebody, the humi humiliation that causes physically. I think is really terrible. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, children are so sensitive to humiliation. Very sensitive. Absolutely. And 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 I think a, a lot of humiliation happens to children. Some of it unnecessary, you know, they, they, they're misunderstanding something, let's say. But I think it's really a good reason why you should never beat your children. Uh-huh. Alice Monroe has talked about this. Even all the way into old age, her mood could be brought down so badly by remembering the humiliation of the beatings she took from her father. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I've seen this in print, you know, about don't beat your children because if the word was not humiliation, that's what was the sentiment that was meant because they'll never forget it. And, and, uh, then, and then that vengefulness that you talked about. Yeah. Then the little being has to try to think of a way to take vengeance somehow and can't on you know, can't on the person who beat them, obviously, so they might end up kicking the dog or something or what, you know, I mean, but it is true that you do then look for an outlet, maybe a, you know, a sneaky one, a hidden one to try to, I mean, isn't this behind a lot of what trolling is? I have no idea why the internet is so filled with hate and what it does mean, but it's certainly the bullying results in the humiliation of the object of the bullying. And that is what seems to turn all these people on, which is shocking. You know, I was thinking as we were talking, it just suddenly occurred to me in Elena Ferranti's books, one thing that always struck me was how inured to humiliation that world is and any world like it. You know, bullies, working class, sub-working class. In other words, people become so inured, all those marriages, people lived for years and years and years in humiliating circumstances where they speak horribly to each other and do horrible things to each other. And that is one of the great dangers of the world, of those parts of the world, 
whenever a society is such that most of its people become inured to humiliation, learn to live with it rather than to be outraged by it. Yes. And I'm growing up in you know, sort of like a, a little bit of a ghetto, working class immigrant life in the Bronx in the 1950s and 60s. I witnessed a lot of that, you know, a, a lot of what later, the things that men and women took from each other and long, miserable marriages that when I came of age, I thought, my God, anything better than that. I'd never, never submit to that. But it was a whole world in which self-respect was not on the boards. It was, it was not the thing that was most needed at all. I thought that was very interesting also, you know, when you said, there are many things we can live without. Self-respect is not one of them. Right. It's something I haven't I haven't thought about, but I mean, it's a given, but it's true. I mean, you can drag yourself along with it, without it, but it is a terrible life. If you have no self-respect, it's a terrible, terrible life. Yeah, absolutely. Vivian, your essay concludes with a discussion of Eric Fromm, and one of the essays included in Taking a Long Look is a review of Lawrence J. Friedman's biography of Eric Fromm, Eric Fromm Loves Profit. And your review touches on the social aspect of his book, Escape from Freedom. And part of his work is so, it's such a powerful ending. It's almost hopeful. It's an almost hopeful ending to this essay on humiliation. So could you discuss your first encounter with Fromm's theories? And then as you write, his notion that finding and fully occupying our authentic selves and then finding meaningful connection is, quote, a proposition we're required to take on faith. Yeah. Well, you know, this is not Fromm. This is, this is Freudian the whole purpose of the therapeutic culture. That's what social psychologists first said. He among, first and foremost among them, they said, which is as old as the classics, if you have yourself, you are impregnable. You are the least vulnerable. So we, we, we live in a, in a world that has made social cliches of these thoughts self-realization, all the rest of the language that goes with it. But in fact, self-knowledge is the greatest weapon you have against being prey to something like humiliation. It's a piece of wisdom. Hannah Arendt made a lot of this. Edmund Goss in Father and Son made a lot of this. For a person to come to consciousness is finally to keep yourself company. If you have yourself you are far less prone to, um, you know, to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And that's what Fromm gave as the first social psychologist of importance in this country. That's what he gave to mass culture, which, of course, diluted and reduced and, and defiled these ideas all the way. But nevertheless, a lot of it sticks even though it, it can often parody itself. Nevertheless, the experience of knowing oneself better and better is really true. The Buddhists make a great deal out of freeing oneself by centering your thoughts. And they, they mean actually, they mean the same thing. They mean if you center your thoughts, what they call centering your thoughts, you're in command of your thoughts. George Eliot 
said when she was asked by women's rights uh, suffragists uh, in her day what she recommended to women. And she said, I recommend a command of your own thought. <laughs> That's what she said women must mm. do, the thing that she could do. Well, she meant the same thing. She meant the same thing. If you have command, not only of your thoughts, but of your reactions, of your feelings, of your relations, you have a much better chance of being an independent, you know, that's true independence and an independent human being in the world and in your life. So that's what the social psychologists led by Fromm brought to America and to the whole Western world. And he was interesting to me because of the, of the fairy tale element of his um, metaphors, uh, as I've said in the essay I wrote on him, that he used the Bible as just as Freud used the classics to try to make a metaphoric description of why and how human beings are prey to humiliation, to loneliness and humiliation. And uh, he does it through Adam and Eve. And I enjoyed that more than through Oedipus. <laughs> so that's about it with me and Fromm. I'm, I'm not a Fromm scholar. I just felt compelled by that work of his. Right. I mean, I just, it was interesting because you discussed like what a pivotal moment it was in the 60s yeah. to have that book and how it really it changed so many people's thoughts. But I'd actually want to speak more about George Eliot because her writing, you know, you cite her in this essay, but the key line, of course, comes from Put on the Diamonds. Put on the Diamonds. <laughs> Put on the Diamonds. Uh, and the, the, the humiliation of that. And that's just such a, uh, such a great, <laughs> it's such a great moment. And you quote from, from that part of Daniel Deronda. So thinking of Eliot and thinking of other writers, what does that need to think well of ourselves have to do with writing? Sigrid, I'm going to give this one to you. <laughs> well, it's probably at the heart of most fiction. I mean, you have, you have a, a protagonist, you have a hero, and somewhere in there, the question of how the hero feels about themselves is going to be a major part of the story or coming up against some kind of challenge to the self and how well the the individual can, as Vivian was saying before, um, how much self-knowledge, self-awareness will be there, how much will be taken away. And that, you know, that, that will be a major conflict of any novel that's dealing with a, a realistic character, I think. No. I, the thing with the thing with Gwyneth Harlow and that scene about the diamonds, which is so is so terrific so well done but but the question is you know she has so much other humiliation to worry about in other words given her life which is ruined anyway and the way she lives you would think wouldn't it just be easier to wear the diamonds and not you know not let it get to you as a, you know you know what i'm saying it's just interesting that that that, that right. this is the thing that she can't one of the things anyway that she can't let go uh what would she gain, actually, given her entire situation, if she were to win that argument and be, and be allowed to wear the emeralds? That was very striking to me. As you say, it's a very interesting argument to have because it's 
it's not just the literalization of his control over her, over her whole life. It's it's touching her head. You know, it's touching the most one of the most intimate parts of yourself, what you think of as yourself. And it's yeah. the fact that she has to make this argument says so much about I don't know. It's 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 a it's a great moment. I, I I don't know. But again, this uh, this idea of George Ellis, what was it, Vivian, where she said with her advice to the to the feminists was or to women was um, in command of your thoughts. Okay, so you can imagine Gwyneth with a different personality or character saying, "I'll wear the diamonds. You think you own me? You think these diamonds, emeralds, what difference it make? What does it make? I'm in control of my thoughts." I'm in command of my thoughts. You can put this on my head, but you can't get into my head. You can't make me think what I don't. You can't make me not hate you. You can't make me not loathe you, et cetera, et cetera. That's just right. Of course, it's like I'm not not saying that's what George Eliot should have done. I'm just saying, you know, that's a a kind of contemporary way of looking looking at it. You don't, you know, you don't own me. You think you own me, but you don't own because you can't own my my heart and my head. Yeah. Well. She's living with it 24-7. Right. It's not an occasional thing. The thing right. about the diamonds is it's just the, the apotheosis of what she lives with every day. Every day, yeah. Remember that I say he hardly bothers her sexually. He's he, In fact, he becomes almost indifferent to her, except when he wishes to show her off as a prize. And then she's aware. I mean, it's like the leash is pulled. Yes. He had let out the leash, mm. and now he pulls in the leash. And she lives with that every minute of her life. That is, that's that's a recipe for, for Well, sex. that's because she doesn't have any other life. Yeah. Right? right? I mean, that's the main, that's, I mean, I can imagine somebody in right. a similar situation who does have some other life, who will nevertheless, even though, it will say, I'm not going to allow this person's power over me to be humiliating you know i will give a certain but i don't really care if you know what i mean well we've all seen many marriages to which we can apply these thoughts yes and i've never seen one where anybody makes their peace with it where you know where you learn to live in an intimate like relation without intimacy yeah i think it's a killer and i think that everybody who endures it does feel humiliated humiliated yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it is one of those experiences. I mean, you know, you all listen to thousands, and, and mostly women, and the relief that they feel when they leave a bad marriage. I mean, it's, or when the husband dies. Yes. That's such a cliche, but it's so true. Those who feel, as they say themselves, I, I feel free. And what, what exactly is she free of? But again, it's, it's the humiliation comes out of the unevenness of power. I mean, you can't actually even have humiliation without it being somebody using power over you. That's what it is. Right. That's what it is. Yeah, definitely. And I guess to some degree, you're right. If a, if a contemporary woman has her own life well in hand, she could live, and well, many do, I guess, live with each other without that, uh, without feeling humiliated. I think, again, as I say, the absence of intimacy in a situation that has promised intimacy, I don't think people get over that so easily. No. But when you were talking about Fromm and talking about, you know, if you have self-knowledge, how it protects you against certain things, the reason why humiliation is so scary is that all that said, no matter how much self-knowledge 
or whatever you have or self-possession, you know, every human being does, that any human being can be humiliated. Yes. You know, you, you can take the grandest creature and put them in a certain situation. And it, you know, if you have that power over them, it can be pretty easy to humiliate them. Love opens up all kinds of possibilities for humiliation. Absolutely. Sex certainly does. So, so I think that's, you know, that, that's the thing about humiliation is that there's, there's no escaping it. If somebody, if somebody wants to do it to you, they can do it almost, you know, nobody's, nobody's uh, protected against it. And in fact, some of the things that humiliate us, like aging humiliates people terribly. Well, that, that's a terrible, and illness People, you see, people with with you, there's, there's, they're ashamed, they're humiliated to have cancer, right? And dying, people, people are humiliated that they're dying. I mean, things that they have no reason to feel at all that they are at fault or done anything, because there are some cases of humiliation where you could say someone might have brought it on themselves or allowed it to happen, let's say, by doing something foolish or whatever it might be. But some of these things, it's just, it's one of some of the most cruel aspects of human life, uh, these humiliations of illness and aging and dying in our culture anyway. Right. I agree completely. Life itself is humiliating. I know. I, it is. It is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> nobody gets out. Nobody gets out on the grave. It's nothing but one long humiliation. <laughs> Well, that's it. It's the human psyche is so receptive. It was so receptive to humiliation. That's, I guess, the, the real question behind Laurie Siegel saying to me, why do we need to think well of ourselves? Mm. Um, it's that receptivity, that, that, um, that ease with which exactly, as, as Sigrid says, all the incredible circumstances which you can feel humiliated over if you are so inclined, and most are self-inclined. <laughs> I'm also thinking of another example you cite in the essay uh, of Jeanne Dielman, which is another case where this woman yeah. clearly has her own thoughts yes. about these Johns. But there's something, and as you, I think, <laughs> very convincingly argue, there's something that she had about her husband, too, but she can't take it. Right. <laughs> she couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> And that flip is, it's, I mean, I think that's, I mean, obviously that's why Chantal Ackerman chose to end the film there because it is this yeah. total shocking moment. And then you, you know, you sit with her after she's done this, but that, you know, there's finally something within her that says enough. I have to assert myself in a way that's yeah, not so, socially sanctioned. <laughs> Well, you know, you at the end, you realize this is what Chantal Ackerman was after from the very beginning, that the greatness of the movie is that it, it understood where it was going and why. And it, it throws you back on the whole three and a half hours, four hours of all the things that she's done. This miserably ordinary, common little life, this, this pedestrian little life that she has to sleep with men in order to get. And that her and she grows increasingly more enraged over. I I mean I thought she made such a great deal, such a great thing of it that it was metaphorical. She made it metaphorical. Everybody 
that I, I remember sitting in the quad. That's where I saw it many years ago, the first time. And it was one of those moments at the end of the movie, the whole audience was stunned. Nobody yeah. <laughs> right. There's a long, long silence, which in those years, a number of foreign films made us feel that way. But it was just, it was stunning. It was just stunning. I mean, it's because she seems to have... Oh, it's not seems to have. She really does have this total control over her surroundings, or so it seems, because she does everything so rigorously and precisely. And even the way she sort of interacts with her son yeah. is very, I mean, that's that's the other genius of this is that it, it shows you the life of a bourgeois woman just sort of going about her day and it lulls you into an idea of what this is going to be with the repetition and the the length of the scenes and then it just completely upends it. Well, it shows you what's behind it. Exactly, yeah. What it takes to achieve that ordinariness. A- another revolutionary act, but I'm, I'm so glad that you discussed, <laughs> I'm so glad, glad you discussed Ackerman. Okay, I think we've done enough on humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you're okay. Although, although, just one more one more point though. What we what we haven't brought up is that there are situations where certain people crave humiliation, and it's something that they want. And you know, you know, I'm thinking of you know sex mm. and, uh, and the other. Well, I suppose not just sex, but you know, there are these where you know, spit spit on me, uh, beat me, whatever. I mean, you know, either either a sexual encounter and or in other situations where people somehow it 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 does something for them yeah. to be to be made to feel like nothing or like a hole or yeah. like worthless whatever that that's all about but that is that is also a part of human experience and it's not it's not a small part i mean it's something not that you that you encounter all the time but it doesn't change the definition no um, no in fact they would say humiliate me humiliate me that's what I want. Yeah. Oh, of course. No doubt. I mean, but that's a sociopath or a, or a psychopath. I mean, isn't it? That, it's a psychopathic part of ordinary life. I'll put it that way. It's a perversion, I guess. Okay. Right. All right. So you found the right word. You know, that's a, it's a perversion. Right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, Sigrid, you have a new novel out and... Vivian, you reviewed The Friend for Book Forum and you described Sigrid's voice as light, musing, curious, and somehow wonderfully <laughs> sturdy. And I think and I think actually the word sturdy might also apply to your voice, where there's something um sturdy is the correct word. I don't want to say assured because that might have a negative connotation, but there is there is something very concrete and precise about it. So I was wondering if you could um, discuss, you know, the when you're crafting an essay, when you're when you, or when you say you're crafting a a novel, the the role of the voice and that that line between the surrogated and unsurrogated self. Sigrid, have you got a clearer view on this? Well, I, I the, the 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 sturdy I get. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about that. You know, as applied to your your work, Vivian, the sturdy meaning that it's not a wobbly stool. I mean, that even if you know, there's not waffling. Even if no, right. even if not all the answers are there, or there's a question I have, I'm not sure about this. Or I have doubts about this, but there is a sense of being able to land firmly on 
on your idea of whatever it is that you're that you're writing about. I mean, as you were saying about this essay that, you know, you, you feel like you didn't get those questions all answered, but it does feel like, you know, I, I would assured is not is not the wrong word here either, but I, I agree with Violet. I like this idea of of sturdy. Now I'm not sure what it would how that would apply. Well, Vivian, you used it in connection with me, so you might know. Yeah, well, that's true. I I I did and um I used it as it was like a flash of inspiration, one of those words that came to me in a moment of inspiration. I think to apply the word sturdy to my work is uh, not surprising. I think to apply the the word to your work, Sigrid, is uh, much more interesting because your narrator is so clearly a fictional narrator. And what that narrator has on her mind is often dreamlike, mysterious, wonderfully associative. And yet the word sturdy came to me as, as really as great, it was great praise in my head when I came upon that word. Because when I used it, I suddenly had this image of the narrator in the friend. She is, hers is the sturdy voice. And I see her like standing against the wind and the wind is all the whole extraordinary braided tapestry of her thoughts and of the things that she is uh, applying those thoughts to. And I see her as grave, gravely brave. That's what sturdy meant to me. I don't know if I'm making any sense now. Oh, you, you are. You are. I'm curious about the... The, the sturdiness of a voice, sort of like that feeling of standing up against the wind and the sense of your own self and this, you know, an right. unsurrogated self. In The Friend in particular, there's late in the book, the narrator reveals that she's changed a certain key detail in the narrative that's inconsequential in terms of the plot, but that also would have changed the way that the whole novel is imagined. Right. So do you feel like there's a certain level of surrogation or like, like how have you discovered that, you know, sort of straddled that line between the surrogated and the unsurrogated self? I think it's dictated by the form in, in a sense, because, because I've, I've, I'm using a form. I've found a form in both of these last two novels where I can do that. I can have a fictional story and all these things, you know, really are invented. But I also, I also have a, a kind of essayistic voice in there where I am trying to, to, to write from a, from a position of strength, as it were. The, the books are, are hybrids in that sense that, that uh, almost everything in them did, never really happened. So there, it's all imagination, invention, etc. But both of those books also have parts where the narrator is speaking and reflecting and observing and digressing. And whenever that happens, that is me in the sense that I am completely identified with that, with those thoughts. Those aren't, oh, what kind of character is it who ended up with this big dog? What would she feel about this or that? I, I, you know, I, I don't, that's not separate from me. So, so anywhere where I'm, where I am, you know, with things blowing around me and, and trying to be sturdy and trying to say, this is how I see it. That came very naturally to me because I, I wasn't, I was in character for the narrator, but I, I wasn't trying to have to imagine a different consciousness. That those, those, that is how I would see things the way I have her see things. And when I, when I have her think, 
oh, uh, this reminds me of, of a book I read or a movie I saw, whatever it is. Those are indeed books that I've read and movies I've seen, and, and they did inspire the following digression. So I think that's I think that's where it comes from that I that it's exactly what I wanted when I was writing those books I wanted to have I wanted it to be like you know for want of a better term an essay novel and you know and it is true if you the essayistic voice is very is very distinct it's it's its own form and it 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 more or less has to be sturdy yeah and it, it and it has to be you it's it's you talking it's not if you don't create a character to write an essay necessarily, right? I mean, unless unless you are doing that for some particular experimental reason. Well, you, you see, uh, I agree with every single thing that you just said. In fact, it's very illuminating for me, even though I felt I understood all this implicitly. You see, my voice is simple essayistic. Sigrid's voice is a combination, and she strikes emotionally deeper. That's what what that accomplishes. The emotional truth in Sigrid's work approaches poetry, and she does it through this combination. I wouldn't have found the words myself to describe what you uh, it, but what you just described is exactly what I realized was happening. And it was a combination of you. There were times I thought it was a memoir posing as a novel, and then I came. Well, yeah, yeah, or well, it's a, yeah, it's good. It's like sort of faux memoir. It's like. Yes. It's not real autofiction, but it's no, no. It's fake autofiction. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, like it. I mean, it really is. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's it. She's nailed it. It's fake <laughs> autofiction. <laughs> Well, because, I mean, the last time, you know, you were on the podcast, Vivian, we were talking about how some writers, when they write through a surrogate, they their, yeah. their voice expands or they expand as a writer. Their range expands and then the and others can only be natural when they're speaking as themselves. Sigrid, in your work, do you feel like there's a certain level of surrogation that's ideal for you? I mean, as you say, you sort of bring these two together, but there's, I mean, I'm not going to be like, what's the formula? But it's, it, it is interesting to see that interplay in, in, in your novels. Well, I definitely don't, don't think about it too much while I'm doing it, because any thinking would be overthinking. You know, there's a voice. And you're, you, you're working in it, you're writing in that voice, and then things just kind of happen. I mean, you have to, I guess that's kind of like inspiration. I mean, it's always work, but, you know, it's, as I say, it, it has, it comes, it comes naturally. And, and I, I, I don't write many short stories, but when I do, it's, it's, it's quite different. You know, then, then, then even if it's in the first person, you know, it really is a character. And there really isn't that kind of um, hybrid thing at all, even if the character is it's first person and it's someone my age and or anything like that. It's 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 quite it's quite a different voice and a different project, as as it were. And I mean, you were you were discussing how you know sometimes these more essayistic portions are based off of something you have a piece of artwork that you've encountered, a movie, a film. And in this issue, you write a review on the linked short stories of Italo Svevo titled A Very Old Man. And first of all, I would love to know one question that Sigrid raises in her review and gives one answer to is of, you know, how such an egotistical and supposedly despicable narrator can make 
for such an ideal literary companion? And how does that work? And that would be, you know, Vivian, I'd love to hear your response to that or, you know, sort of your general thoughts on Sveva. Well, that, I mean, Sveva was a genius. That helps. And it's interesting because he's an autobiographical writer. So here he, he, he was, by all accounts, a terrific guy, a, a, you know, a wonderful husband, a wonderful friend, even though for almost all of his life he was failing at what he should not have been failing at, <laughs> which was writing. You know, he, he found a way to cope with it. Humor was helped. And, and yet these characters that he writes about that are, that are based on his own life are despicable, you know, in, in, really despicable in, in many cases, uh, really badly behaved. But as I say in the review, the, the, the character, uh, the main character in the, A Very Old Man and in uh, Zeno's Conscience, which, which uh, these stories grew out of, so Zeno, he has the, the qualities that, you know, that are the most, uh, that are the best qualities in, in a person, some of the best qualities, which is intelligence and a sense of humor and and curiosity it, you know so here you have this awful character through this zeno through this book but he really is very curious he you know he's very curious about other people and of course the 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 novel is peopled with many other characters so you're always you know you're always happy to be in his consciousness so yes he 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 does very despicable things but but i think this is a real achievement on his part because uh because he's a completely likable character in the end, uh, throughout, actually. But the, the humor has a lot to do with it. And as I say, the, the fact, the curiosity, like I say, that he is a narcissist. There's, there's, there's no, no two ways about that. But he's not a malignant narcissist. And he knows, therefore, he knows that other people exist and they have their own lives. And he is curious about them and he observes them brilliantly. And he has compassion for other people. So that's the, you know, and, and this is uh, Svevo himself. You know, it reflects himself, I suppose. You know, I mean, obviously he did, he did have flaws, but uh, certainly the really wonderful parts about Zeno are something that you identify with, with Svevo himself. Vivian, did you, are you familiar with Svevo? Or, or did uh, Sigrid's review sort of bring up any you know, extended thinking about either your own writing or Svevo's oh, writing? Yes, but nothing. Sigurd's work always makes me, and I I feel the same, I'm sure, that she, I, ho I hope, feels about me. I always enjoy and feel moved and instructed by everything she writes. So in a general way, yes, certainly the Svevo piece was as rich and um, as inviting as any other. Uh, I resonated to his his life the way uh, she did. I mean, after all, it's the life of a writer who endured many of the things that dog all of us. Humiliation, humiliation, and, and, uh, just endless <laughs> humiliation as a writer. But actually, and he was he refused to accept to name that right. He refused to look upon himself as humiliated. Right, he had a different. He had another life, you know. He was a businessman, uh, you know, and he and it was a, a, you know, it was a. He had a lot to do. He had a very serious, very serious businessman. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 
his work is actually not my cup of tea. I mean, I, I, I'm so straight and I'm so narrow. <laughs> my sense of my ability to get inside his humor is limited. But I loved, I loved Sigrid exemplifying it all and explaining it all, really. But it, it's not, his is not uh, a life or a, um, a kind of writing that touches me where in my, deep, my deepest self. Um, so I don't really have much to say about it, but I loved reading what you wrote. Well, I think maybe this leads to the last question I'll trouble you with um, is, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to set up this interview was because there's a sense that there's a kind of complementary quality to your work. And I could try to explain the connections I see, but I thought I thought it'd be more interesting to hear what the two of you see about, you know, the places where your projects or your sensibilities overlap or are in conversation with similar influences. Oh. Svevo, no. But other places, oh, yes, I would love to hear. Absolutely. I resonate to it deeply. That Her whole explanation of the voice that she has achieved and its mixture of elements is thrilling to me. No, no, no. I, I, I certainly resonated deeply to the friend, which I wrote happily, happily. Um, and when I say it's a, when I think of it as a memoir uh, disguised as a novel, actually, I mean that is great praise. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing nowadays many of us who do some version of this kind of work think about. I, whenever I find a writer like Sigrid, who makes me think more about my own work, and and certainly her her novels too, I'm always registering somewhere in the back of my head how she's using this voice and the different tones that it, it achieves, and, and from essayistic to uh, metaphoric, I love it all. I'm a great admirer, and um, I'm I'm a, I'm a great fan. <laughs> Well, this is all very, very good to you. I'm blushing here. You can't oh, see good. me. But, <laughs> but um, I, I am, of course, in ha- before before Vivian was a fan of mine, I was a fan of hers, <laughs> uh, beginning with Fierce Attachments. And it, when I was, in, um, I was in Berlin and I met a writer named Ronald Steele. And, oh, yeah. yeah, and it's interesting that this was in 2005. And we got to know each other and he said, I have to put you together with Vivian Gornick. And he said the same thing to me. Yeah, see? So he saw something. And <laughs> we and of course he said and, and and I don't know whether he said this or I'm just remembering it this way, but I did know that she was on 12th Street and I was on 13th Street and but we we didn't cross paths except once in the supermarket where I was going to say something, but then she got angry at what whatever miss whatever was going on there and she actually said vivian you actually said to the air why do we even come to this store nothing ever worked it was just it was a supermarket on Sixth <laughs> where where everything was always wrong and so I, I decided this was not the moment to introduce myself but i love what she why do we even why do we even shop here she said <laughs> to the air <laughs> Uh, and frustration and she was absolutely right but then years passed and then you know Ronald Steele said this and I thought okay but then then I didn't do it and then then when my 
or, and she didn't either. But then when she reviewed my book, then I, I got in touch with her and that's where we first met. And that was what, that was 2017, 2018, 20, 2017. So, um, but only fairly recently have I been writing long book reviews and, yes. uh, you know, and, and finding my way for me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a new genre in fact. And I, I, I have Vivian very much in mind when I, when I uh, am writing these uh, essays, it, in a part because of the sturdiness that you're trying to find a way to not act as if you knew everything and, and you had such a strong opinion that could never be shaken, but a sturdiness in and a kind of confidence in your ability to read something and, and draw something out of it that will be, that you will then be able to present in, in a way that will help the reader. And so I feel like I'm learning. I, I've been learning for the last couple of years, how to, how to write these, these, these reviews, these longer reviews. And uh, Vivian is definitely a mentor for me there. Oh, for God's sake, I didn't know that. It, it, well, I have, you You should know, I have brought up, I mean, somebody like Elizabeth Hardwick, who's writing I Adore, I would not review a book the way she does. You, you see, so she, she was a mentor in other ways, but I don't think she, she is doing what I what I want to do or think I should do as a as a book reviewer. So, um, you right? Right. No, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean. I mean, it's that's not that's not dissing her in any way. Oh. But, but you need you need a, you need a good model, and for me, Vivian is a very good model for this. So 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 there we are. I'm not honored because I think these long pieces that you've been doing are they're really they're wonderful. They're really wonderful. They they themselves are a model of what a book review should be. So here we are, a mutual <laughs> admiration society. <laughs> People are going to say that was such an obnoxious podcast. All I did, all I did was say <laughs> how wonderful, how wonderful each other is. I should have set it up so you guys were fighting. It would have been more drama, more, more plays. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> what it, but it is really it's it's lovely to hear both of you talk and sort of elucidate these things. What are you each working on now? Well, we're both doing book reviews. I don't know if you're doing a book review right now. But I am. I, you I am. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm doing a book review, but I'm also. I did start a novel. Now, what do I have? 50, 60 pages, I believe. And you know uh -huh. it's a hard thing because I can't I can't work on both of them. One one has to I have to stop the novel writing to devote everything to the to the to the nonfiction while I'm working on it, and then I yeah. get very anxious that I'm you know to get back to the. But I want to do it. You know I very much I very much want to 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 write these essays. What are, what are you working on? I I'm working on an introduction. I think I I'm sure I told you, Sigrid. I'm working on an introduction to the republication of the stories of Tess Schlesinger, a writer of the 1930s. No, who, no, you didn't tell me. Who, who is oh, this? No, no. Tess Schlesinger was a, a, like a left-wing Mary McCarthy. She wrote uh, one novel and many, many short stories throughout the 30s. And then she went to Hollywood and became a screenwriter worked actually on a tree grows in Brooklyn and movies like that. Oh yeah. And she died young at, at 39 in 1945. 
So her stories are remarkable, as is the novel. And it's a takedown. The novel is a, a really interesting takedown of left-wing Jewish intellectual life in the 1930s in New York City. So she writes, she writes a book that only a woman could have written. Uh-huh. She's in that life. But no man who ever wrote about that world, and thousands have by now, could ever have written what she, the way the way could have seen the world that they're they're inhabiting as she sees it. So I have my work cut out for me, but I'm 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 enjoying it. All right, I look forward. To- that sounds great. <laughs> it does, and that will that's an introduction, but will no doubt be published separately somewhere. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, good. Well, this was a real pleasure. Thank you. Till next time. Okay. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 